Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Vanderbilt Television News Archive. My name is Jim Duran. I'm the curator of Born Digital Collections and a manager of the a manager of the Television News Archive. Today, we will hear from some of the founders of the institution, and we also learn about some of the new and exciting opportunities we have for the future. But before we start that, I'd like to first recognize some very important guests that I think we all should thank, because if it weren't for them and their hard work and dedication, we would not have the Television News Archive, nor would we have this event. So as I call your name, could you please stand? Dana Courier, Steve Davis, Russ Mason, Skip Pfeiffer, Susan Greider, and Larry McClintock. Could we all just thank these individuals? Thank you all for uh, everything you've done and also for welcoming me as a new staff member in, in your group. I'd like to start the program with a short video created by our very own Steve Davis. This video will welcome new users to the collection and offers researchers some ideas on new ways they might use the television news archive. On August 5, 1968, the Vanderbilt Television News Archive recorded its first programs. Now, with more than 60,000 hours of searchable content, the News Archive records nationally broadcast nightly news programs, as well as special events like the Senate Watergate hearings and the appearances of the sitting presidents of the United States. Its beginnings date back to March of 1968, when a Nashville, Tennessee insurance executive, Paul Simpson, approached the university about creating such an archive. He explains why there was a need for a repository like this. Well, we think when you look back on the history of the 60s in the United States, that it would be most important to have a permanent record of these television news programs because we think they will have had an effect on the course of events. Uh, as you know, newspapers, magazines, and books are available in most all of the libraries throughout the United States. We visualize that the time will come when each of those libraries will also have a television library. It is certainly a very important news media, and at the present time is the only news media that is not kept and is not made available for scholars and historians to study. Paul Simpson was right and he was wrong. Simpson was wrong in thinking that other libraries would actually develop or decide to tape the evening news. That didn't really happen. Vanderbilt remains alone and unique in its collection of the television evening news from this time period. He was right, Simpson was right, in understanding that these broadcasts in their entirety do provide a window into understanding the late 1960s, 70s, and 80s, particularly at a time when network television news dominated the landscape. It was when most Americans got their information from the network television news. My students use it to understand how Americans of that time understood things like the Vietnam War, the developing civil rights revolutions, uh, women's rights, gay rights. They use it even to understand commercial advertising and how that has transformed over the years. This remains really a unique resource at Vanderbilt University. It is one of the things that really does set our library's collection apart. 
Generally, I'm interested in issues of social and criminal justice, and specifically, I'm interested in understanding how activists leverage the media to press for social and political change. When I first came to the archive in 2015, I quite literally was blown away by the enormity of material that's included in the collection. And I've really begun to think about the material and the collection that exists at the Vanderbilt Television News Archive as really a snapshot or a portal into our national collective consciousness and a real opportunity for researchers to access material that allows them to answer those big, timely, and important questions. In addition to the real richness of the material included in the collection, when a researcher comes to the archive, they're immediately greeted by a very friendly, professional, and highly skilled staff of archivists and curators who really are there to help you execute your research agenda at every phase of the project. Therefore, I would encourage those who are curious about those topics that reside at the intersection or the margins of issues related to the media, history, politics, society, or culture to come and explore the material that exists at the collection. I know I, for one, have begun to refer to the archive as my research home away from home. So from my perspective as the head of a nonprofit news organization, the Vanderbilt Television News Archive is a national treasure. It's critical and essential because it preserves part of our history. What we do as in our project is we create short-form documentaries that help citizens relearn and re-experience both the breaking news event from decades ago, but also how it applies to them today. And we couldn't do that work. We couldn't analyze or learn lessons from the way stories were covered if we didn't have this amazing treasure and resource of the Vanderbilt Television News Archive. So civic literacy has to be an essential part of our education, both for students and for the general public. It's something that is so important and I think has really been lost. And the only way to really promote civic literacy, or the best way from my perspective, is to look back. To look back at the news events, to re-experience them, but also to the way they were covered, the way they were portrayed. They're really valuable lessons for our society about the way press and media cover events, the way they're unfolding, and frankly, the long tail of the news cycle. We've gotten to a place where everything is moving so quickly, and how do we get people to stop and take stock and understand that we've experienced many of these things before, and there are real valuable lessons in our history. And I think that's something that we care a lot about and that the Vanderbilt Television News Archive allows us to do, but allows any documentary filmmaker to do. They can browse and experience and live and remember and feel those moments in a visceral way from watching. For over 50 years, the Vanderbilt Television News Archive, keeping the past for the future. Great job, Steve. It's a very good video, and that will be on our website to uh, encourage students and uh, faculty and give them ideas of how they might be able to use the uh, collection in the future. Also part of our celebration today, we have a, a contest, a TV news trivia contest. If you didn't uh, 
grab a ballot. You can please raise your hand, and we'll pass out some more ballots uh, for you. <laughs> oh, they're on the front table.、Uh, there's a basket right by the. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Everybody got an answer sheet. Please don't use your phones or reference librarians. <laughs> Okay, as you're writing down your answers, I'm going to invite Russ Mason up to invite our first guest speaker. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for coming. It's really great to see such a nice turnout. And、uh, if you all actually、uh, drove yourself over here, then congratulations on having found a parking place. Skip Pfeiffer, who's back there at the cake, and、uh, John Lynch here, and I、uh, all started way back in the 1970s,、uh, back when、uh, the Television News Archive was located right here in this building, up on the sixth floor. But while we've all been around for a very long time,、um, even long timers like us weren't here when the archive actually started. Uh, back on August 5, 1968. Luckily, however, we do have somebody with us today who was here back then, and that somebody is Frank Grisham. But before we invite him up to speak, because mindful of the fact that.、Um, It's been a while since Frank has been here in an official capacity.、Uh, some of you may not be all that familiar with him,、uh, either because you weren't around back when he was director of the library, or perhaps you're just too young to remember. We have a little short slideshow to help bring everybody up to speed about our special guest. So let's have a look. Frank Grisham grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and attended Birmingham Southern College. Where, after working the night shift for a couple of years in a steel mill while attending classes during the day, he found a job shelving books in Birmingham Southern's library, which is where he says he first began to fall in love with libraries. His plan, however, was to become a minister, and after receiving a master's degree in theology from Vanderbilt Divinity School, he served churches in Alabama before returning to Nashville in 1956. At the invitation of Vanderbilt Dean John Keith Benton, for whom Benton Chapel is named, to serve as director of the Vanderbilt Divinity School Library, eventually becoming assistant director <laughs> and then director of what was then known as the Joint University Libraries. Frank first met Paul Simpson through the downtown Rotary Club and was persuaded that Paul's idea to start an archive of daily news broadcasts of nationally televised news had sufficient merit. That he shared the concept with Chancellor Hurd and others in Vanderbilt's administration, including Jeff Carr and Bob McGaw. In our News Knowledge podcast about the early days of the archive, you can hear Frank talk about his adventures and misadventures in trying to record the news himself during the archive's 13-week pilot project in 1968. You'd think all of this would be more than enough responsibility for one person. But then Frank was also asked by the mayor to serve as vice chairman of Nashville School Board during the difficult transition to an integrated public school system in the early 70s. Later, when the Joint University Libraries partnership with Peabody and Skerritt was dissolved in 1979, Frank oversaw the transition of this library and its employees to Vanderbilt. 
and he handled all of this while he and his wife were raising their four children, three of whom are here with us today. In 1982, he finally left Vanderbilt and went to work for Solonet, where he remained until his retirement in 1993. Now 25 years into his retirement, Frank will turn 90 later this month. So please join us now, both to congratulate Frank on a lifetime full of extraordinary accomplishments and to thank him once again for his 26 years of service to Vanderbilt University. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Grisham. I am amazed. This, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> you behind this, Russ? Okay. Thank you for for coming. This is a wonderful group. I see so many friends. I think uh, they made a mistake in inviting me to say something. <laughs> um, you said I had uh, three and a half minutes. Is that what you said? How much time you need, Well, I can't let this occasion go by. There were times uh, at the beginning of the Vanderbilt Television News Archive when I wondered if we could make it. And then when they talk about observing its anniversary. I wondered if I could live long enough. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to be associated with Vanderbilt and the library in retirement. You have really made me feel good about what has uh, on in the past. It's Tom Swartz here? Yeah, there he is. That article you wrote, Tom, really was well done. And we appreciate that kind of publicity. If you need any more subjects, we'll be glad to, to contribute. Uh, I think what Tom has done, he certainly helped us bring uh, additional insight into the importance of this project. And he's bringing us additional clarity as to what happened in the past. But then there's a man by the name of Paul Simpson. I wish I could just spend the rest of the afternoon talking about Paul and our relationship. A dear man, one who has a lot of energy and a lot of ideas and a lot of strategy, some of which I didn't agree with. But 
Paul is responsible for this uh, project. There's no doubt about it. And he and I, even though we differed politically and differed in many in strategies and all, he and I became fast friends. Uh, instead of saying hello when I would meet him, our greeting was, keep dreaming. And we did that for over a year. I would pass him and I would say, keep dreaming. And this dream of his, with what little I contributed, has become a reality that uh, Vanderbilt should be proud of. I want to keep my remarks brief, but I must point to the fact that at the time that uh, Paul approached me, the library was what was known as JUL, the Joint University Libraries. And you new people may not know what I'm talking about, but I as director of libraries, reported to the chief executive as officer of Vanderbilt, Peabody, and Scarrett. And that was fun and games. <laughs> I never knew what would happen when our board of trust, repre representatives from the boards of trust of each of the institutions, and the chief executive, the chief executive officer got together for our, our uh, trustees meeting and our executive committee meeting. The executive committee were the three presidents and chancellor. It turns out that rather than the library being a topic, often, and I don't think the minutes reflect this, often it was a discussion between the president of Peabody and the chancellor of Vanderbilt about the cross-enrollment of football players from Vanderbilt. <laughs> I had a hard time getting them to get on the subject the library. There were so many other things that they needed to talk about, including the status of football players. <laughs> to manipulate the meetings of the trustees and the executive committee, it was not difficult as long as I did not ask Peabody and Scarrett for money. <laughs> they went along with anything they didn't have to pay for. <laughs> JUL had its day. It really was an important concept brought about in a needy time.
And that uh, concept ran its course. And the merger, and I fortunately was still here, brought about a uh, new day for us. Uh, a day that I will long remember in the merger of the, of the libraries. I had gotten to know Paul quite well. Paul was not only energetic and full of interesting ideas, but he had contacts. And if it had not been for those contacts, plus his own financial contribution, I don't think we'd be here today. Paul was... Uh, anxious about the basic funding, but he had contacts that I did not know, and I'll name a couple of them in a moment. But in all of this, I, I fell in love with the concept, but I expanded the concept to include a different level it never got off the ground and probably never will. But what I had in mind, in addition to this operation becoming a model, was that the large, the large metropolitan areas would save their local news in a local library modeled after what we were doing here. I never got anywhere pushing that, but it's still a concept that I feel, given the importance of news, ought to be pursued. I'm honored that my family has been invited to this. I don't know who did it, but I'm glad they're here. Thank you, Ross. You must have done it. <laughs> my uh, family's support was absolutely necessary. If for no other reason, I needed help in pushing the buttons to record. <laughs> and the boys, one is not here, he lives in Dallas, but two of the boys are here, would come over with me, and they knew as much about recording as, as I did. I was trained by one Ron Moulton, and uh, my, my boys picked up on it to where they would know how to operate the machines. And I said to those in charge, particularly uh, my friend uh, 
who ran this shop. Um, I, I wanted to have, I better not get into that. No, I don't. I don't want to be quoted. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, what I need to do is give, make some acknowledgement of those who helped us, and they were many. Uh, Paul's, Paul's contacts included the likes of his friends, Pat Wilson, Jack Massey, Sam Fleming, and several foundations. Namely, the Massey, Potter, Carthage, Mellon, and Scaife foundations. They with Paul pushing, uh, really did make major financial contributions to keep us alive. But we were, in a way, if you work on the Vanderbilt campus, you know what I'm talking about. We were controlled in raising money in a manner that would be compatible with the the, the institutional's fundraising. And uh, any time that we approached a foundation, we had to check it out and see if we were in conflict with something that Vanderbilt had. And Vanderbilt had a number of projects going at the same time. But there's no doubt that this operation owes a great deal to two people that were mentioned in the in the video. One Bob McGall, secretary of the university, who was on the committee that Chancellor appointed, and uh, Jeff Carr, who was the general counsel of the university. They really got us through some rough times, and we owe a great deal to those two men. Uh, I remember so well in one of our meetings uh, a call, I think it was McGall, said, uh, Frank, when are you going to stop calling us? You know, uh, but it got to the point when they said, Frank Grisham is on the phone. You could hear him say, well, now what's gone wrong now? <laughs> but they were so supportive of the whole effort. And then there was, was a company by the name of Nicholson. I hope I've got this right. Is that right? They let us uh, borrow Ron Moulton, who later became a member of the staff. But Nicholson uh, put us in touch with, uh, with the 
manufacturer of videotapes. And they, that company said to me, Ampex, I think it was, if I'm not wrong, uh, you know more about the care and feeding of videotapes than we do. We knew that they needed to be exercised. We had to exercise the tapes. And if you want to know why, you talk to somebody after, afterwards. We also found out that you should never shelve videotape against the elevator shaft. <laughs> the magnet wiped us out for them. We also found out that you should be careful when you go through an airport uh, screening machine. It'll erase your tapes. They knew, we knew a lot about, they being Ampex, knew we knew a lot about the care and feeding of videotapes. Now, they never gave us a price break. <laughs> but it was, it was a joy to know that we knew a little bit about what we were doing. Then came along one Jimmy Pilkington, early on, friend of mine through our Methodist connections, and we owe so much to Jimmy. Those of you who worked with him know how valuable he was. I just wish he could be here to be a part of this occasion. Now, I mentioned Ron Moulton. He taught us all. And then there's Skip Pfeiffer. Is he here? Yeah, there he is. He's been an institution. <laughs> been a part of this operation how long? Really? And you're still at it. I'm, it's dangerous for me to call names because I will leave someone out and regret it. And John Lynch came along after I left and kept things in first class as far as I could tell from afar. Of course, I was living in Atlanta then and I couldn't tell much, but... Uh, <laughs> Russ Mason has been a, a godsend. Uh, Marshall, is Marshall here? Marshall has been, oh, such a help. I'm glad you came back to visit with us. Dare I, I better not name any more. If you think you should have been recognized, hold up your hand. <laughs> And we'll do that. <laughs> I want to leave time for more important things, but I have a confession to make. 
And I will end with this confession. It's very important. Uh, think, times have got rather boring when you record tapes and you, you wonder what to do while you're waiting. There were 30 minutes only, and we had 30-minute news then. Uh, you wondered what to do with yourself, and I uh, heard over my shoulder the devil talking. And the devil said to me, gave me instructions on how to break the boredom. So, without, this is the first time I've ever mentioned this. You people who are associated with it and have been associated with it, you may be surprised. I recorded 15 minutes of the Radio Music Hall chorus line. <laughs> Didn't say a word about it. Just to see if Skip or some of them would, uh, would catch it. And I have not heard to this day from any of them. And I keep looking in the index to see if he's indexed that. But I don't know what happened to it, and they will not admit that they even saw it. <laughs> but I've got proof. <laughs> Those of you who put this event together, whomever you are, from Valerie to your assistant Cliff and, and all, all of you, Russ, who put this event together, I am extremely indebted to you. At the autumn of my life, I am so proud of what has happened and just delighted with this occasion, and I thank you for it. Hang on, Frank. You're not going anywhere yet. <laughs> I'm almost done with you. We have a little gift here for oh you. Oh my. Um, with the help of uh, Phil Nagy over in uh, Special Collections uh, Photo Archive, uh, we've uh, managed to find a bunch of old photos from uh, Frank's tenure here at Vanderbilt, and we've put them together in this book. And I want to. A book. A photo album. And look who's on the front. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll just finish up. Just finish up. I'd like to quote uh, the note that's on the inside uh, flap. Once you get that open, you can read it for yourself, but I'm going to read it to everybody right now. This photo album was given by the Vanderbilt Television News Archive with profound gratitude for Frank Grisham's role in the archive's founding and for his continued support and encouragement <laughs> throughout his tenure as Vanderbilt, as library director and beyond. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. Thank you. Now you can go. Here, you want to take it?
Our next speaker sends his regrets that he can't join us in person. However, Russ, Steve, and I had the opportunity to meet him and record some of his thoughts about the 50th anniversary. Joe B. Wyatt was the sixth chancellor of Vanderbilt University, serving from 1982 to 2000. Before that, he served as the vice president of administration at Harvard University, where he oversaw the Educom Computer Education Network. Wyatt's interest and ex expertise with educational computer systems served Vanderbilt well and helped the news archive with some challenges of the 1980s and 1990s, specifically the start of cable news networks like CNN, founded by Ted Turner, and also the rise of the internet. Helping him in that era was Vanderbilt's chef, Jeff Carr, a key figure in the news archive during Wyatt's administration. Let's now listen to Chancellor Emeritus Joe Wyatt reflect on these developments in the news archive from the 1980s and 1990s. This former country club in Atlanta is the headquarters for the cable news network. News reports from bureaus in six other American cities and two foreign bureaus will be received here by satellite and put into newscasts, which will be transmitted by satellite to cable television systems throughout the country. Uh, the conversation was about Ted Turner's idea. And uh, the idea was to provide a service for public information, news, uh, that would be built around a Learjet with a camera aboard, a reporter and a camera person to go anywhere on the planet that news was breaking and be there to broadcast and communicate with uh, the rest of us on the planet. Uh, he actually launched that activity in 1980. Um, and during the course of the conversation, uh, he pointed out that uh, the, the, the result of, one of the results of this effort would be that the tel television news archive at Vanderbilt would be able to have all of this recorded uh, and indexed for people, uh, researchers, others, public policy people uh, to view. So that was the first. Um, after I arrived at Vanderbilt, most of it had been established and was rocking along nicely until 1982, 1983, there was another dust up about whether Vanderbilt uh, could legally uh, provide this service. And that was, uh, the, the dust cloud was being generated by uh, CBS again, although I think the other networks were in, involved with that. Uh, Jeff Carr was the leader in uh, defending Vanderbilt on this second time around as well. And uh, I, would, I would say that uh, it, was, it was his skill and his patience that kept us in that game until we won. Um, and that was one thing that uh, characterized Jeff so much. Uh, there, uh, Jeff was a steady, quiet guy, but uh, mind like a steel trap, always interested in novel things. And this, I think that's what interested him so much about the news archive and the uniqueness of it. But that lawsuit was uh, won by Vanderbilt once more. And so the news archive really began to take off at, at just exactly the right time because uh, with the Internet's arrival uh, and the ability to access the index, uh, for sure, um, 
I think it, it enabled a lot of people from various and sundry fields who happened to want to see um, what was going on relative to their issue of interest. And a good deal of that had been at that time even uh, shown on television, or one aspect of it had been shown on television. Uh, it's, it is a remarkable situation that exists now in terms of the opportunities um, uh, the, that the TV News Archive ha has to contribute to the welfare of the country and the welfare of society and the welfare of, of the planet. And that is that news anymore is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, if, it's, if it's not coming at you all from a television screen, it, it can come at you from your own screen that you either carry around with you or have at home or some of, some of both. So in, in managing to get the most out of looking at what is actually happening from the news in, in all dimensions, the, the coverage uh, that's required to do that is ever expanding. There are decisions that, that have to be made in order to, to sustain all this uh, to broaden and follow uh, the coverage of news and the delivery of news across the planet to uh, get at and digest and make their own decisions based on what is happening around, around the world. Uh, actually, it enables uh, business people, students, faculty, everyone uh, to see things that very often only a decade before they didn't even have access to, much less immediate access. So uh, I'm happy to say that I think that uh, the 50th anniversary is as much of a beginning as it is uh, an end to what goes on at the television news archive by perhaps even several orders of magnitude. Thank you, Chancellor Wyatt, for recording those uh, notes for us. And uh, we uh, wish him luck. And he's vacationing in, uh, in Canada right now. So we he sends his regrets for not coming, but thank you for recording that for us. I'd like to mention some upcoming TV news events that we're going to host. On uh, October 15th at 11.15 in this room, we will ha I'm going to present a curator talk on a brief history of television advertising. We'll have a fun look at some of the uh, iconic ad ads throughout the history that are in the collection. And on October 15th, we have a panel discussion on informed citizenship. Our next speaker is helping shape the future of TV News Archive. With his leadership and plan for a more open and collaborative archive, Vanderbilt recently hosted a Mellon Foundation-funded workshop titled Sustaining Television News for the Next Generation. With his in interests in computational thinking and digital humanities, he continues to explore new opportunities for the News Archive to join a more open and collaborative academic environment. Vanderbilt Associate University Librarian for Research and Learning, Clifford Anderson. Seth? Thanks, Jim, and uh, thank you all again for being here, and, and thank you, Frank, in particular. That was a, a really moving talk, and uh, we just keep learning so much. It's really fantastic. Um, so welcome to our celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Vanderbilt Television News Archive. As Jim said, I'm Cliff Anderson. I'm the Associate University Librarian for Research and Learning. And while others at this gathering have been talking about the wonderful achievements of the past, and they are what we are here to celebrate, my talk is about to 
speculating about the future. So this is a little bit easier in a sense because all of us can speculate about what hasn't happened. So when I first received the charge for the Television News Archive in 2017, people asked me whether television was a dying medium. Given the significance of television news in our contemporary political landscape, I've heard this question less often in recent months. For millions of Americans, television remains an important and essential source of information about the world and a key part of the public record. According to the Pew Research Center, the audience for the evening news of the major networks has remained steady from 2008 to 2015 at around 23 million. Moreover, video footage produced by the broadcast news organizations like CNN, the Associated Press, and ABC News provide core authoritative content to which many users are led through media applications like Twitter and Facebook. So popular reports of the death of television news are greatly exaggerated. There are, of course, threats to the relevance of broadcast news. The demographics of television news is, of the viewers is skewing older perhaps influence, influencing the content of the news itself. And the trend towards personalization in the online environment and the proliferation of micro-channels underlines the broadcast paradigm. The spectacular growth of online advertising models like Google AdSense has reduced the revenue streams for television news. And the legal environment continues to develop. What was legally controversial 50 or 20 years ago, as we heard about these two examples, may have become accepted practice in the age of Google, Facebook, and Twitter. So as old legal and business models are challenged, the time is ripe for exploring new models of this type of uh, archival process. And so, as Jim mentioned, the Andrew Mellon Foundation provided support for a workshop that we held this spring to discuss the legal the uh, technology and the sustainability issues related to television news. And I'd just like to share a few thoughts that came out of that workshop. So, as we've heard, pre preserving television news raises significant legal questions. The most prominent of these is who owns the content? And for a long time, when it first got started, this was a bit of a gray area until that 1972 suit. But we can be really happy that in the 1976 Copyright Act, we have the so-called Vanderbilt Clause, uh, which preserves our right to actually record and make these materials available for the public under a set of fairly uh, defined restrictions. So we are continuing to operate under those clauses. And I'd like to recognize Susan Greider and Lara McClintock, because they're the ones that carry out the loans every day that we operate on, uh, sending out DVDs around the world to people who are interested in the news. But at stake in these legal discussions is the tension between freedom of expression and copyright. As a scholar remarks, the access to television forms a nexus of copyright law and First Amendment rights. Protecting freedom of expression is a key goal of librarianship. And in an era of fake news, making sure that citizens have access to authoritative sources is needed so that we can judge and respond to events that are in the news in an appropriate way. One of our speakers at the workshop, Brandon Butler, who is the Director of Information Policy at the University of Virginia, helped us to analyze that landscape in our workshop and argued that we should be pushing for more fair use rights. So we'll hope to do that. Jim and I have got some plans. <laughs> A second area of concern for us relates to the technology for preserving broadcast news. While the number of television viewers may be flattening out, 
the number of channels and programs has proliferated. Anyone turn on the television these days, you can see that. So preserving U.S. broadcasts is no longer a matter simply of recording the evening news programs of the three major networks. A diverse field of broadcast and cable providers such as CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, just to name a few, now provide important coverage. And the nature of the news cycle, as we've heard, is changing radically. Capturing contemporary television now requires keeping pace with this 24-hour cycle that Chancellor Wyatt talked about. Breaking news may occur at any point, requiring constant decision-making about the relative significance of news events. We have found ways to automate some of those essential functions. For example, by using enterprise DVR technologies like Snapstream to record television news. And I'm still trying to come to terms with exactly how that works, but it is very cool that it can do it. <laughs> so while Russ Mason used to rush in on weekends and others in the, in the archive to capture news events when uh, breaking news occurred, uh, we now have the luxury of at least a six-hour window that he can chop news segments from, which is very helpful. I'm sure, Russ, you, Russ, you appreciate that. Uh, it's interesting, that, though, that this move from the traditional sort of tape-based analog approach to digital has also presented additional problems. For example, when we're recording now in high definition, that's a lot of material to store on a network. Um, John, I'm sure you know about this, and uh, so do you, Marshall. I mean, these are huge files that we're talking about, 500 terabytes now, of logistical storage uh, on our advanced computing center. Um, so, you know, that's, I think, the third largest of the collections across all of Vanderbilt, including the scientific labs, uh, just to give you a sense of, you know, how big that collection is. And that's including things that come from CERN to Vanderbilt. So it's a big, big collection. And keeping on top of that, we also have to describe it so that people can, you know, find what they're looking for. And this is where we've got now close to 1.2 million records in a database. Uh, and that database owes a tremendous debt to the tireless work of Skip Pfeiffer and Dana Courier to have described and abstracted those shows. It's just incredible. So a third challenge, of course, as we've heard uh, alluded to several times, is the financial viability of library-based preservation of the news. As you all know, recording the news requires considerable effort and expense. While to outsiders, preserving the news might seem as simple as pushing a DVR button or uh, maybe just typing in a computer program you can figure out how it works, uh, the day-to-day -day operations of a television news archive are much more complex and costly. As Deanna Markham noted in her Ithaca SNR study of the television news archive, which was a study about the success, the long-term success of this program, quote, funding an operation that requires up-to-date technology and a labor-intensive workflow has been hard to sustain. Uh, so we're finding that true, but uh, we are moving forward. So we're an at an inflection point today with multiple archival efforts, efforts around the country operating in parallel. Were those programs to coordinate and divide responsibility among themselves, the total cost of these programs might decrease. I think this is something of the vision that you had where lots of libraries would be participating, not just Vanderbilt. Um, and we're hoping now that we can work on those collaborations with the assistance of this Mellon Planning Grant, especially um, with the Center for Research Libraries, who's done such a great job in preserving print-based media. So in closing, I just want to say we have our work cut out for us, but it's wonderful work, and I'd love to contemplate the future of the Television News Archive. And it's great to have you gathered here because this is the collective wisdom that we need, having seen how you've handled these challenges, that gives us the encouragement to go forward 
and handle the challenges of our era. So thank you again, and I look forward um, to uh, our next celebration, hopefully not 50 years from now, but uh, we'll give it another 10. <laughs> Thanks so much. All right, thank you all for coming. We have one more video to share with you. This one was produced by Communications and will go out uh, on social media uh, to also celebrate our 50th anniversary. It was born during the protests and violence outside the 1968 Democratic Convention. It's part of a one-of-a-kind idea, the Vanderbilt TV News Archive. And 50 years later, it is still documenting protests. Originally meant to be a 90-day experiment, the archive is still recording our history. It has chronicled conflicts on our land and our conflicts abroad. It's captured moments when we held our breath. Yes, indeed. They've got the flag up now. And cried. Oh, another one. Another plane just hit. It was very much a kind of DIY operation at the beginning and that they were figuring out things as they went along. The idea to preserve TV news, an innovative idea back in 1968, came from a Nashville businessman. Well, we think when you look back on the history of the 60s in the United States, that it would be most important to have a permanent record of these television news programs because we think they will have had an effect on the course of events. We don't trust the, uh, the Democratic Party we don't trust the Republican Party. We don't trust the American government. Words uttered 50 years ago seem strangely prophetic through the years. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Even as TV has moved from black and white video to color and flashy graphics, the archive's mission is the same as it was five decades ago. We want to provide as an objective possible recording of the news. Now recorded digitally, the archive stores our history in the cloud, a move it hopes will allow easier public access. No, I think our goal is, is to allow people to go back and see what was said. A novel idea 50 years ago has evolved into an important tool for today. It's a continuing legacy in ways that I don't think you could have imagined. Thank you all for coming. Please help yourself to cake and uh, uh, refreshments that are left. Thank you all very much.